Jorgensen Soundbox, a sandbox of sounds. The best conversations involve both laughing and learning, and that's exactly what I'm going to bring you here. The topics I usually explore are Web3, so decentralized finance, NFTs, and the metaverse, putting money to work through angel investing, permanent equity, real estate, stocks, and leverage, the art of increasing your outcomes. Uh, But I also want to bring you the just fun, interesting people you can learn from, uh, and not just people on the book tour, but People you may have never heard of before who have really, really interesting stories to share um, from their corners of the world. And I'm very excited because this is the podcast I desperately wish I had six months ago when I was bumping into walls trying to get my bearings in this world of crypto. Uh, my buddy Sean is a brilliant writer and marketer. Uh, he's been working full time in crypto since like 2016. He was a Fulbright scholar. He taught blockchain at Parsons School of Design, and he just got a wealth of knowledge to share. He's got some amazing stories. Uh, he helped Sean. Uh, he helped Spencer Dinwiddie, the NBA star, tokenize the first contract in pro sports, uh, which is actually like open and out and live today, which I had not even realized. And in this podcast, I try to ask really fundamental questions. And Sean does a really good job explaining things to me like I'm Michael Scott, uh, probably because he has taught to people who who don't always know uh, what's going on. So he's really good at getting down to first principles and plain English. Toward the end, we have a little fun and speculate somewhat wildly about the order in which the whole world will come on chain um, and what the second and third order effects of blockchains could be and how they'll change society kind of the way the internet did uh, that we now take for granted. I don't have any sponsors for the podcast, uh, though if you're interested, my DMs are open. Uh, Today, I'll just ask you to support us by reviewing the podcast, sharing it with a friend, or joining my email list where you'll get blog posts and information about my course. I'm super excited to bring you this conversation. Sean's brilliant. Blockchains are complicated and we can all use all the help we can get. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Please enjoy this conversation arriving at your ears in three, two, one. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, This is going to be a very exciting conversation for me personally because... I spent a lot of time feeling like a fucking idiot um, reading about the blockchain. And I feel like you're the right man to bring me like a little bit closer to feeling like I know what the hell is going on. If you ever meet someone who tells you they know what's going on across all of the blockchain, uh, they're lying either to you or to themselves. There's so <laughs> much... The, the pace of innovation in this industry is absurd. And I spend almost all of my time focused on 
Ethereum specifically, and I can't keep up with Ethereum, let alone every other layer two network or layer one network that's pushing in different directions. Yeah, I uh, that does make me feel slightly better. Um, so I'm going to ask you, like, one not only to define those things so that we like get to to plain English, um, yeah, a little bit later, but I want to I want to kind of like get a sense of you first. Um, so we met in New York, like. I don't know, at least a three or four years ago, um, I think over like nursing sort of a like Twitter bromance about mental models. Um, and I've kind of come a long way since then. Um, is that is that right? Yeah. At that time, I was running meetups in New York with uh, Adam Thomas, if you know him, uh, through like the Farnham Street meetup. We oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. were hosting once a month meetups dis- diving deep into mental models and stuff. And we connected over Twitter, I think, through your Evergreen Library course. Uh, And then we met up for the first time, I want to say, around Union Square for Singaporean food. Yeah, I've been to Singapore and I still don't totally know what Singaporean food is. Um, But it was a good time. Uh, Yeah, and you were were doing a ton with education and stuff too. I remember taking your um, mental models email course. Uh, which is amazing, and whatever I slurp up all mental model related information. So um, it's it good to find a kindred spirit in that. Yeah, yeah, totally. What's your um, what was your like education background, like sort of lived experience um, up to I don't know, maybe the point when you first started kind of getting into Web three. Yeah, so. I grew up in a restaurant. My parents are restaurateurs. So uh, like as a young kid, when I wasn't at school or home or both the parents were working, was at the restaurant and started working there when I was about 12. Um, that I think shaped a lot of how I see the world, etc. Um, graduating high school, I ended up going to Fordham because at the time they had the best ROI of any undergrad program I got uh, accepted into. And so went to study finance at Fordham in 2008 and first semester of my freshman year, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers collapsed. And they were the two biggest recruiting pipelines for investment banking out of Fordham. So it was like, whoa, have to kind of rethink this whole investment bank thing. Um, and you know, as an eager, curious undergrad trying to explore the world, I stumbled down into Zuccotti Park. Somebody handed me a zine about Bitcoin. And that was sort of the first moment where it was like, Oh, there's like an alternative pathway to money here. Um, ended up reading some sci-fi, Cryptonomicon that sort of led deeper down the rabbit hole there. And then um, my senior year of college, tried starting uh, started a little startup with a friend that was uh, creating a high-end functional marketplace or a, a marketplace for high-end functional glassware. And we couldn't get anyone to give us credit cards. So we started accepting Bitcoin. And it was super easy. Uh, unfortunately, I sold all of my Bitcoin because I needed a new laptop back then. And after undergrad, I got a Fulbright, moved to Sri Lanka, spent a year there working in the post-war uh, Tamil region, came back and got the opportunity to work with Seth Godin on Krypton Community College, and then fell into education technology startups. And it was wasn't until about a year after Ethereum was launched that I really revisited Web3 and was able to find my way to consensus. Yeah. And you started freelancing for them, right? Like just so like what was the first kind of role in there that you picked up? 
Yeah. So a friend was starting a collaborative sci-fi universe and started doing a little freelance work with them and quickly went full-time at the end of 2016, early 2017. Left my job at Barnes & Noble to go work on a harebrained startup trying to recreate (laughs) uh, sci-fi. We were really early in NFTs and trying to create a collaborative fandom. Um, That project ultimately went sideways, like a lot of projects in consensus did. It was really speculative and research and development heavy. Is like what what was was consensus like an umbrella for a bunch of different stuff? Yeah. So when I joined, I was employee three thirty ish at consensus, and within the year I was there, they scaled up to about four thousand employees across about two hundred and fifty different spokes. So you know, individual projects, and some of them live on, like. MetaMask, Infura, core parts of Web3 infrastructure. But a lot of it was speculative research and development. And it was really just a huge mesh of people working on a mishmash of different organizations and like different ideas all relating to the central theme of, hey, we're building something on the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. So, so, uh, so let's go with Solarius. Um, and I remember talking to you about this when it was coming out. I thought it was super cool. There was like trailers and all kinds of stuff. So like... But yeah. for for let's start with like why does a sci-fi universe need to be on a blockchain? Like, what's different about it? As a is it a new form of media? Is it like old media that just sort of happens to like get organized on the blockchain? Like, to help a me new out. form of intellectual property, and we really want it to push down the rabbit hole of uh, derivative works. So, like. Say, Eric, you created a character that I then put into a short story that got put into a book and published and started making money. Royalty should flow back to you for the usage of your character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to like really embrace the idea that to create a holistic sci-fi universe, it has to be collaborative in its roots and at its nature. And like the idea that one company can own and control a fandom and shut down fans from creating on top of it is kind of shit. Like if you look at all of the fan work around, say, the Star Wars universe, it's mm-hmm. prolific and it's incredible. And Disney has pulled some of it into canon and has paid some fans to sort of hush them up, but they've also shut down a lot of the innovation and a lot of the cool stuff. And like people really get to connect with characters in unique and meaningful ways. And we wanted to create a fan-owned and controlled sci-fi universe. That's super cool. Okay, so so uh, I'm, I'm hesitant in this conversation, especially because I think you uh, you are like really gifted at actually like taking a confusing thing and unpacking it back to English. I think partly because you've been doing this for so long and partly because like you're a highly empathetic like copywriter I in and education so long. Educator. Yeah, yeah, you worked in education, you were like um I've heard some of your talks about like microcopy and UX and marketing. So I'm going to like kind of keep pushing you to like simplify and explain stuff. Um Yeah, there's for, a lot of jargon in the industry yeah. that I think I take for granted at this point, like anybody who's deep down the rabbit hole that for people who are entering, like simplify, simplify, simplify. Yeah. I'm, I'm relishing my ignorance um, at this particular moment so that I can like still flag those as being like, wait, 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 like we got to unpack that. Um, So, so let's maybe start with like, uh, 
Web3, which seems to be kind of becoming the preferred term for like everything that's happening around this. Um, yeah. I could be wrong, but like, tell me if I'm wrong and tell me if like, w- what are the maybe boundaries? Like what's included, what's not? How do you know something's like a Web3 project? So Web3 is a general nomaker for anything related to blockchains in general and permissionless. And I like to take a step back, like when friends are sort of first going down the the rabbit hole, I always say, uh, start with first principles, read the Bitcoin white paper, then read the Ethereum white paper. And remember that Bitcoin, the token, the cryptocurrency runs on Bitcoin, the blockchain. And it turns out you can do a lot more with blockchains than just trade cryptocurrencies and mm-hmm. like look at number go up. You can actually like <laughs> issue degrees on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. There are now people who are building smart contracting layers and application layers that tie to the Bitcoin network. And Ethereum was really a, a huge innovation insofar as it introduced the idea of a smart contract and really creating a programmable platform for blockchains to create decentralized applications. And to me, Web3 is all about decentralized applications and like picking up the work that Tim Berners-Lee started with the World Wide Web and creating a decentralized global communication platform and like removing the wall gardens that were built during Google, Facebook, and uh, the Web2 boom. Yeah, it does seem like uh, crypto culture is kind of a return to like the the, uh, the like intellectual anarchist roots of the internet. Which <laughs> And if you look at the people who gravitated to Bitcoin in the early days, it's... Yeah fascinating how different their ideological belief systems are. Like on one end, you had libertarians who were looking at Bitcoin as a deflationary return to the gold standard. And on the other end, you had crypto anarchists who were viewing Bitcoin as a way to like completely reinvent society. And both of them were completely right. But their end game for Bitcoin was at odds with one another. Yeah. And, and that was a... Um... I don't know, it feels like Bitcoin was almost designed to not change. And that's like the feature and the bug. And the the like gridlock was a feature, not a bug. And like yeah, those conflicting ideologies. Slow just, and yeah. deliberate. Yeah. So a huge, I mean, a step for me was kind of like smart contracts I knew much more how to identify with. And something really clicked for me also. Uh, and we're gonna like kind of circle back to Solarius with this, I hope. Um, in understanding that like in web. Well, in each revolution between like personal computer, web one, web two, mobile, like there's some new function that basically approached being approached free, like costless publication was web one, costless like communication was maybe web two. Um, And if web three is like the beginning of smart, of of transactions approaching costlessness, is that, is that kind of like, how do you agree with that oversimplification? Totally. And okay. I, I think the atomic unit of a transaction is something most people don't really pay a lot of attention to in their day-to-day life. And there's so much complexity in transactions that go on in the world that like has been largely obfuscated away by financial technology. And how many true transactions do you make in a month? Maybe you pay a mortgage or rent via a wire transfer. You get direct deposit twice a month. Like, not that many. 
Um, first, like in the Web3 world, there are people who are literally getting paid through contract streaming. So like getting paid every single second, their salary streaming into their crypto wallet. So they're getting thousands of transactions over the course of an hour, millions over the course of the month. And it totally reframes the way you interact with the world. Like of Coinbase had this great tweet thread a few years ago around how in the early 1900s, people sent like a letter a month, if that. <laughs> and then in the, the 90s, like you would make phone calls, but not necessarily long distance. And then in the 2000s, between email, text message, Snapchat, Instagram, you're sending thousands of messages a day. We're we're going to be sending thousands of transactions a day. And I think if you were in the web in the late 90s, you would look around and say, well, yeah, at some point, the web is going to be much larger. The online world will be much larger than the offline world. Similarly, I see a future where the on-chain world is much larger than the off-chain world, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. So uh, so let's circle back to Solaris. So Solaris... Um, I mean, to, to extend the metaphor, really, like the, it is prohibitively expensive and difficult and crufty and complicated to have, to be like running around attributing IP to people yep. who are producing like fan art now, right? Like if, if you, you know, create a fanfic in the Star Wars universe, uh, nobody knows like which ideas were yours and which, and at what point you published them necessarily or how you get compensated or how, you know what characters you pulled from. So, so the is it fair to say the vision of Solarius was kind of like if we can create a universe based on this blockchain technology, we will be able to like perfectly track contributions and compensate people for those contributions because we are built on this new kind of like costless transaction technology. Exactly. We spent some cycles trying to like find existing intellectual property that we could adapt to the model and realize nobody wanted to play ball because <laughs> existing like, existing franchises really benefited heavily. So we're like, okay, fine. We just need to create our own sci-fi universe. Yeah. And it was a very cyberpunk crypto forward universe. Um, I can share a Dropbox link with you to throw in the show notes for the white paper in the universe guide. And like, the idea was essentially laying out basic parameters and a canvas of a world that people could start to fill in. And we got to work with some really incredible uh, designers, artists, writers uh, globally on content and created. You can go on Kindle today and still download a copy of the original Solarius stories. That's awesome. What, what happened yeah. with that? Like, How did that story progress? Uh, so like many things in consensus, we were building initially during uh, the crypto boom and then crypto winter fell apart and uh, consensus as an organization was funded off of Ethereum and Bitcoin and uh, they ended up laying off more than half the company um, oh. and a lot of projects got shut down. So that's when I started freelancing in crypto. Okay. Did, did you feel like it was... Um... Like, was there traction on Solarius or did it feel like too early for that? Because, I mean, back in... This was in 2019, right? No, the, this was 2017 and 18. 17. Holy so, shit. Okay, yeah. So, like, there oh, must have yeah, been no, the, only a few million people with wallets even, maybe? Yeah, the state of the art of Ethereum at the time was uh, largely unusable. 
Yeah. <laughs> that is that is a poor state of the art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we were we were an R and D project. We had and we had our alpha that we signed up for, and it was essentially a like Tumblr esque feed that you had to install a MetaMask wallet to connect into. So it was and like even at that time, just building the infrastructure to have a MetaMask wallet and connect to a DAP was like that took weeks of developers' time to build. It was really complex. Versus today, uh, you could use a little library like onboard.js and you know knock that out in half a day. Yeah. So so how did you change? Um, I mean, especially like so coming out of Solarius, out of consensus, and moving into the freelance, like. Did that have an impact on how you think about what, like, what's too early and what's going to be, like, what era totally. of kind of adoption and, and building cycle we're in? I got really lucky uh, towards the tail end of my time at Consensus. I got to know Matt Cutler, the CEO and co-founder of Block Native, and when Consensus went belly up, uh, I reconnected with Matt and started working halftime uh, with Block Native. And that was right as they were getting ready to launch their first product at ETH Denver. And this was seeing their product. It was an onboarding library that handled all of the UX problems of MetaMask and provided transaction notifications. And it's like, wow, this is a core problem I felt when trying to build a dApp. Every other developer, like, why rebuild this? Just use use Assist at the time, which has now been spun off into two products, Onboard and Notify. Uh, and I was also... Had been doing some work with Spencer Dinwiddie, the NBA player. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, tell, yeah. Tell that whole that whole story. Because I think that's a, also like a good... It bridges the gap of like early, like visionary use of blockchain technology, like real world challenge... Uh, and like, oh shit, maybe we're too early for that. Like, like, give us the give us the Spencer Dinwiddie saga from the beginning. Yeah, so I was still at Consensus when I got to know Spencer. Met him through some mutual friends who did oh, his and, web development work. Uh, time out. So he's an NBA player. Uh, for those who are not already NBA fans, um, like pretty, like I don't know. Would you say like uh, I don't know top quartile? But not top. Yeah, decile. he's a he's, he's a really strong player. Uh, has a huge fandom. Entrepreneur yeah. at the time he had launched his like Spencer as a early player decided not to take a contract from Nike or any other shoe company and said, "Wait, you're going to pay me what like fifty thousand dollars a year to wear your shoes? Screw that!" And went and built his own shoe company uh, that he <laughs> now runs. So like, just such. A visionary player and mm-hmm. seeing like he's really thinking 20, 30 years out. Uh, also just wickedly smart, salt of the earth guy. Got to know him when I was at Consensus and after leaving Consensus, continued working with him. We did, he knew he wanted to do something in blockchain, mm-hmm. and we did a bunch of design thinking workshops to really hone in on okay, so like what are we actually going to do as an initial project? Uh, the uh, original ideas were around social tokens, NFTs, and then security tokens. And we honed in on the security token as sort of like, let's start here because this is a super interesting use case, pretty well-structured. Uh, when I started freelancing, worked with a few other individuals, and we did an initial three-month project just to figure out 
how to get a security token off the ground in a legal and compliant way and sort of phased out the project in a few steps. Can we sidebar like security token 101 for a second? Yeah. So we wanted to do a regulated security offering. So essentially a like a bond offering or a stock offering, those are considered securities, but mm-hmm. we wanted to do it as a token uh, on the, the Ethereum blockchain. And the original sort of idea we honed in on was a token that paid relatively low interest, but had a kicker if Spencer signed his third year player option would shoot up to paying a really like equity like rates of return. So a fun combination of like financial instrument, sports betting, all tied together in a token. And kind of fandom too, right? Like I got to believe, yeah. I got to love Spencer and believe that like exactly. great things are going to happen for him and his team to want to buy that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, did the original scope of work. We f- thought it would take somewhere around six-ish months to get everything pulled together. Started working with vendors ranging from Paxos, the trust company, to securitize the token issuance platform, to DLX, one of the top security blockchain crypto law firms in the world, and started working on pulling all of this together. Uh, Took a little bit longer than anyone envisioned. And then we (laughs) went to... Always does. Uh, (laughs) We we went to issue the... or went. Went to announce the first the token, mm-hmm. um, and within twelve hours of announcing the token, had a cease and desist from the NBA. Oh, they're fast. Put, yeah, they are very fast. <laughs> well, the NBA as an organization is really nothing but lawyers, and they're either contract lawyers or intellectual property lawyers. They're either like dealing with player contracts or they're dealing with licensing assets, and that's. All the NBA does all day, every day. And they are a wildly sophisticated organization. Definitely the most tech-savvy sports league in the world. Yeah. So they're like... I mean, the NBA has a great reputation amongst sports leagues. They were early to like do Top Shot. They've got a bunch of cool yep. like fans. So, so like, I'm, if anybody's going to be down with it, it's going to be the NBA. But were you guys trying to just kind of like sneak by them in the night? Did you try to work with them and they like ignored you until they tried to put you back in the hole? Like what happened? We, uh, from our legal interpretation of the collective bargaining agreement, what we were doing was totally fine. And okay. it's very common for NBA players to go and take financing out against their contract, but it's typically done on Wall Street, behind closed doors. Nobody talks about it. It's Whoa. not public. That's yeah, really and so one important thing to note about the NBA is they have a very strong player guarantee. So like, if you're a player and you break your leg, as long as you broke your leg doing not doing something on the NBA's banned list, you're fine. Like you're mm-hmm. gonna get your salary. Versus if you're an NFL player and you break your leg even while playing, the chances of you seeing 100% of your contract salary very low. Interesting. So way safer to like take that as a player and go finance it, or, or as an investor to buy some of it as an NBA exactly. contract. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. Um, and Spencer and, wanted to tokenize his contract for the same reason the players would want to finance it, basically to get like more cash up front so that he could do yeah. other investments or live his life or exactly. buy a house. Or he wanted to get cash up front. He also wanted to show a model to the rest of the league that, like, hey, you don't have to, like, you can be your own banking. You can connect with fans in unique and interesting ways. And, like, cool, you want to airdrop every token holder NFTs that represent a ticket to a box at the stadium? Like, 
you can do that. It's really simple. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, so so NBA ended up kind of putting a kibosh on the Dinwiddie tokenization project. Then that was took, the end of that. Uh, no, so it took several months. We originally uh, we worked through with the NBA and were able to create a new bond structure that was just a flat rate interest vehicle. Um, and got ready to launch again. Um, ran into some other hiccups, got ready to launch again. And we ended up launching the, the security offering on Black Thursday uh, during COVID, which was hmm. just a lovely day to be issuing any security. Um, and despite all of those hurdles, we were able to successfully meet the round minimum and issue the first ever professional athlete investment token. Oh, that's amazing. So it exists. It's out there in the world. It, it exists. Oh, shit. Uh, that's awesome. Bondholders are getting paid their interest in stable coins at, represented by Paxos's dollar token. Um, yeah, it, it is a, a real-world financial vehicle. Anybody can go on Etherscan and look up the token. That's super cool. I thought that had a, a less happy ending. Um, yeah, it, it was like... Listen, not the ending we were all hoping for. It took yeah. away, took three times as long and cost <laughs> ten times as much as anyone wanted, but we were able to get it done. Which, uh, like, I was stoked. Yeah, that's cool. so. I, I was I was reading about this uh, as I was, was researching, and I think there was um, was it the like gambling, like the kicker for the resign that the NBA really objected to. They really objected to that. Uh, they thought it was a violation of the gambling clause. Yeah. Um, our lawyers thought it was totally admissible. Lots of back and forth over that. Mm. Mm, lawyers. Lawyers. Yes. <laughs> um, we, I, hey, we worked with some incredible lawyers. The team at DLX was just great and super savvy. Yes. Oh, no, I too love all lawyers. Yes. Uh, so we've got uh, so Spencer. Like, is that still a side project that you're working on, the Dinwiddie project, or like you're kind of hands off now that that's just running itself it's, and you're good? It's in maintenance mode. We cool. have all of, like the fiduciaries in place to see the security through to the end of its life cycle. Um, Spencer is currently working on a, another application called Galaxy, which is sort of like a social token fandom platform. I've been an early beta tester and like have provided them with a lot of feedback along the way, but I don't actively work with him on that. Okay. Um, or just is, a fanboy of all things Spencer. <laughs> yeah. So can yeah. we, like, can I go buy that token? Or the like SD26 token? No, his like his securitized contract token. So it was done through a regulated security offering only to accredited investors. Uh, each token had a nominal face value of 150,000 US dollars. So if somebody who owns one wants to sell it, you can, and it, it trades sort of like a bond, but there's not many tokens and not an active market. And we deliberately set it as a very high strike price to only attract sophisticated investors because it was a new and novel instrument and we wanted to make sure like people fully understood what they were buying. Interesting. So where do you, when do you see that becoming like, uh, is there a path to that being more democratized where it's like that can get sold for, you know, in thousand dollar chunks and you can get closer to that, like sort of NFT yeah, fandom airdrop sort of like experience under reg CF, the rules are probably emerging. Um, we want it to be very 
well within the bounds of For securities sure. law because yeah. it was a very high profile offering with a like so yeah, I mean, when you're the first one you know the pioneer you want to get it right exactly want to get it right and want to like lay a foundation i think in general the regulatory environment in america we need some clarity for people who are launching tokens and taking innovation and building new projects like is coinbase lend uh, a violation of securities act unclear is blockfi well if you ask the state of new jersey yeah it's definitely illegal if you ask other states it's totally permissible yeah and yeah, I, I like i am no lawyer uh, i don't play one on the internet <laughs> i just follow closely the regulatory environment and i think america has America has benefited very heavily from financial innovation. Look at what Wall Street has done for our country. And globally, almost all stable coins and stable coins are tokens that target no price volatility uh, are based off the US dollar. And I think there's a huge opportunity for America to lean in and embrace this digital innovation because then all of the crypto stable coins will be based off the dollar, which over the long term will be very good for the U.S. economy. And do you know like the difference in the different types of stable coins out there? No, no, I don't. I know there, there's a number of them. I know that at least all the ones I know of are pegged to the dollar and that there's a tipping point where like we are the global reserve currency and we're like on the verge of becoming the internet's reserve currency, but that may exactly. or may not actually happen. Yeah. yeah like on. the US dollar could become the internet reserve currency if we lean into stable coins. But in stable coins th- themselves, there's two major categories. There's reserve backed stable coins. These are things like Paxos, Gemini dollar, USDC, where they hold a dollar in an account for every stable coin they issue or like high-grade corporate bonds in an account for every dollar they issue. And then there's collateralized stable coins, of which MakerDAO is the largest creator with their DAI stable coin, where like, you take ETH and enter it into a smart contract, and it mints uh, DAI, the stable coin, and the interest rate you pay is variable, and the collateralization rate is constantly monitored by smart contracts. And you could actually have your liquidity, your asset wiped out if your position goes underwater. So the, the stable coin remains, but the as the price of the collateral moves, the value of your collateral changes to keep that dollar pegged. Correct. And okay. Maker really introduced the idea of collateralized debt positions. So you could take 20 bucks in ETH and go and create a collateralized debt position on Maker if you wanted to. And this is like, these are concepts that historically would have only been available to the highest echelons of corporate finance on Wall Street and done by investment banks. And now they're done by smart contracts and yeah, available I, to anyone. I don't pretend to have a super good understanding of this, but the collateralized debt was what caused the whole housing crisis clusterfuck, is it not? Are we just doing that again in crypto or are we doing it smarter this time? Doing it smarter and more transparent. And the thing with the housing market, the real clusterfuck there was nobody knew what they held. So Mm. imagine in 2008, if every single mortgage-backed security was on a distributed ledger and you could quickly ascertain the underlying asset values and like, Oh, the vast majority of CDP or collateralized debt positions for mortgage-backed securities, MBSs, were totally fine. 
it was just nobody knew if the ones they had were going to zero or if they would like trade at 80 cents on the dollar. And it was all of that uncertainty in the global financial market that led to most of the meltdown. So like, mm-hmm. blockchains are actually bringing way more transparency and understanding to financial markets, which I think it reduces systemic risk in a lot of ways. Yeah. like I In doing this, I know that... Um blockchains not only bring the transaction cost uh, asymptotic to zero, but also tend by default to make things public, um, which are important for different reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Transparency is important. And there's... So if you, say, are the CEO of any major bank, like let's take Citibank, you have no idea what's on your balance sheet today. You probably know what's on your balance sheet as of three days ago. You definitely know as of seven days ago. But the velocity of money inside of those large financial organizations is so great that to have a real-time understanding is really hard. That's why when you go and do an ACH, a wire payment, it takes days to clear because that's how long the financial system needs to actually... like. Say, yeah, Eric, we're going to take your money from your account at Chase and go pay down this credit card over at Bank of America. And because they're different banks, you know, it's going to take a minute to make sure the money actually clears. Versus yeah. on a blockchain in Ethereum, you know, it's probabilistic every 15 seconds, a new block is minted and you know the where all of your assets are in real time. So that leads me to kind of an interesting, uh, or something that's super uncertain to me and probably to everybody uh, for the next decade is like where are the where are like the traditional financial system and like the kind of new financial system that's getting built mostly in like kind of parallel it seems on the blockchain like where are those yeah. going to play really nicely together and where are they going to conflict or just be like totally unable to bridge. Yeah, crypto on ramps and off ramps are a huge problem. Like, how do you get off chain assets and bring them on chain? And a lot of this is like the classic problem that's been going on in the economy for decades around digital transformations. Like, the idea of I bought a house, my mortgage is sitting in a filing cabinet at the county clerk's office. Like, how does that get digitized is actually a really hard problem. And will require a lot of coordination across a variety of industries. I think things like Venmo enabling crypto payments, and it's now like I can send you dollars just as easily as I can send you ETH or Bitcoin, it makes really simple. Uh, And digital native solutions will obviously be the first to embrace crypto in a meaningful way because it's pretty easy for the on-ramps and off-ramps like it's already running on the rails of the internet. Um, and like the internet itself has an error code for insufficient funds that was never really used in a meaningful way. So it was always in the design of the internet to have a digital native money. But outside of the internet in the meat space, uh, yeah, we're, it's going to take some time for crypto on and off ramps to. Yeah. I mean, I think it, like the. You know, 40, 40 some years into the internet, not even really. Um, like we now have global free messaging and publishing for basically everybody. Um, but everything is still not quite internetified. Uh, in the same way, it's probably going to take another 40 years to get things on chain. So, 
Um, I would say, though, one big difference. Um, Raul Paul had a great interview on the Bankless podcast. I love that I one. Yeah, yeah. Highly recommend everyone to listen to. The pace of adoption of crypto sure. is eclipsing the pace of the adoption even at the height of the internet. And it's in large part because there's a direct financial incentive. And, well, and and we have, I mean, distributed devices, we have connectivity, we have developers. Exactly. So we much have of the core all the infrastructure like, for web two to build on top of. One of the most rewarding projects I got to work on at Consensus was a nonprofit endeavor where we were literally paying women in Afghanistan in Ethereum and Bitcoin to learn to code. So, like, hey, cool. you complete these modules, we'll send you some ETH that way. You control your own money. No one else in your household does. And like, you're actually learning tangible, marketable skills that are available. Like, you can work in the global workforce. Yeah, which is a huge deal. I remember um, in college, uh, Michigan State was working on a project to teach like online entrepreneurial skills to yeah. women in Muslim countries who were like not allowed to leave their homes uh, without like being accompanied. By a man and exactly. something. So like giving them economic freedom within their own homes is incredible. It's also one of the cool things about the crypto space, seeing the like anonymous project founders and anonymous yeah. workers evolve. Um, I'm not totally sure how I like feel about that. I haven't yet created an alternative persona that's contributing to DAOs or doing anything in the that space. That you would admit to. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, but it's awesome seeing that, like, hey, anyone anywhere in the world with an internet connection and an understanding of the space can participate. If you know Solidity, great. Anyone, there are no shortage of jobs available to you. Yeah. Solidity being the uh, programming language native to Ethereum. Correct. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's do the. Um, I thought I'd come back to this kind of like layer one discussion because um, it took me, yeah. this is one of those things that took me like an embarrassingly long number of blog post reads before I actually figured out what the hell like L1 and L2 and stuff people were talking about. Yeah. Um, there seems to be no one living at the intersection between like, I don't know anything about crypto and like, I've already been in crypto for two years and I'm trying to like speak the language of it. There's nobody like <laughs> helping that on ramp, like handing out pamphlets. So um, let's do a little. So, L1 layer ones are just different discrete blockchains, right? So Ethereum is one level one, Bitcoin Correct. is one level one. What else fits in that category? Solana? Solana, Avalanche, Avalanche, like any core foundational blockchain. And then a layer two, it generally refers to scalability solutions that are attached to a layer one. And the mental model that I like to explain, it's sort of like a bar tab, like if I go and grab a couple of beers with friends, they're not running my credit card on every single beer. It's like, let's open up a tab. You know, I have a set amount of money. Like, cool. Just when we're done transacting, check out. And the major layer two networks on Ethereum, there's the Polygon Matic network, there's Optimism, and there's Arbitrum, uh, which are sort of the three, three of the leading ones on yeah. Bitcoin, there's also layer two networks like the Block Stacks, Stacks ecosystem, uh, and the Lightning Network, which are bringing smart contracting and high throughput transactions to the Bitcoin blockchain. Okay, that's super helpful. So the the narrative that I see, because I read a lot of Bankless, tends to be like everything's getting built on Ethereum. 
uh, there's a little bit of like territorial or like nativism evolving around these kind of L1s. Yeah. Um, like, or do you mostly work maximalism. on maximalism? Yeah, maximalism. Yes, yes, maxis. Uh, yeah. like, to a pretty unhealthy degree based on, I, I think. But um, so, like, what's the. Is it because there's high like switching costs between the two? Is it because you just like, or between all of the different layer ones? Like if you learn Solidity, you're going to be developing on ETH and unable to also keep up with what's going so, on on Bitcoin? Yeah, it's it's funny. Like I've always been confused by the maximalism because Bitcoin and Ethereum are closer to each other than they are to traditional finance or centralized finance, mm-hmm. TradFi, CFi, or to anything else. Um there's also this weird incentive mechanism where if you're a large token holder in one ecosystem, you are predispositioned to that ecosystem. Uh, Ethereum's where the vast majority of global development activity is happening. Uh, it's also setting a lot of the standards that are being adopted on other blockchains. So uh, if you hear the words like EVM compatible, that's Ethereum virtual machine compatible. So like NBA Top Shots, which runs on Flow, a blockchain built by Dapper Labs that's specific to high-throughput games, is like they're running on the ERC721 standard. They're EVM compatible. So I I do see the world is eventually becoming multi-chain and cross-chain. And like at some point in a few years, if I go to transact on chain, I don't actually care which chain is processing the transaction. That will all happen in the back end by complex technology. Um, at Block Native, we're specialists in mempools. So like sort of the intersection from when a transaction is started until when a transaction gets confirmed on chain. And we support multiple chains with our transaction management enterprise software. So we run on Bitcoin, Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, XDAI, and Polygon today. And we'll be adding additional L1s and L2s over the weeks and months to come. Okay. Um, I'm going to use a very strange metaphor here to try to understand what the hell a mempool is. Um, so, like- Oh, mempools are deep down the rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, so is this one of those things that like when even when Bitcoin or when Ethereum or any of these uh sort of blockchain technologies are widely distributed, like we still don't really need to know what a mempool is or even need to know that word, right? In the same way that like we don't need to know how server farms work in order to like click shit on Facebook. Totally. In the same way that when you go into a coffee shop and you tap your credit card, you don't need to know that Visa is orchestrating six companies behind the scenes to validate your transaction in a second and a half. No, like this is, (laughs) if you like, it's fun being at a leading infrastructure provider where you've probably, if you've engaged in a, with a top DeFi or NFT app, you've used block native services. You've just, been the benefit of a better UX, a more clean transaction experience, better gas estimation. Um, it's important if you're a, like a power user to understand mempools because in the moments when you create a transaction until it gets confirmed on chain, that is the domain of a mempool and transaction risk, transaction anxiety all live within those moments. And when you know you pay out the nose for gas. That's because of competition in the mempool to get on chain. So it impacts everyone, but it's, it it isn't fundamental that everyone knows how to use a mempool. Just like 
you don't need to know what SMTP protocol is to send an email. It just works. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I think we're. I hope we are quickly approaching like just works because it's still it's still like as an on ramp, you get confronted with a screen of like a bunch of stuff that doesn't make sense to you and like long kind of confusing looking addresses. Although that's starting yeah. to change pretty quickly. ENS domains where mm-hmm. any web address now can have an associated ETH address, which is super cool. Yeah, so so I don't own it yet, but it's on my list of stuff to do. Hopefully by the time this comes out, I have it. Um, so it's like ejorgensen.com. I can go also register for ejorgensen.eth. And then in the same way that you'd like type in that URL to go view my information, you can type in that address to send value exactly. to me through like through Ethereum specifically, because it's Ethereum name system. Through Ethereum or any EVM compatible chain. So even on like the Matic network on Polygon on layer two, I can send, I can type that in and it will pull up your Matic address. Yeah. Okay. So and when you said so flow is ERC 720, which is an Ethereum uh it is compatible with Ethereum. Does that make it necessarily an L2 of Ethereum? No, Flow is definitely an L1, uh, yeah. just because they are their own unique blockchain with their own nodes. It's actually like a beautifully designed blockchain uh, with a very high throughput. But conceivably, at some point in the future, if I am holding top shots on my Flow wallet and I want it to move it into my Ethereum wallet, I should be able to do that. We're not at the point where that's actually possible yet, but the interoperability standards are there. Yeah, it, it like that was another. Um, I mean, I tripped over that early in my just like clicking around, being like, "Wait, I can't just like send Bitcoin to Ethereum." And it's like, no, these are separate chains. They are like yeah. distinct but worlds. You could send your Bitcoin to the Badger DAO and receive tokens that represent Ethereum or that represent Bitcoin on Ethereum. It's yeah. called wrapped BTC, which is like. When I saw that, my mind sort of exploded a little bit. <laughs> yeah, took, all, all of the like yeah. prefixes of like there's you know there's wrapped and then there's yielding and um exactly. and, and there's now being uh, there's their cross chain technologies are getting created too. So like uh, Thorchain is a project yeah. that I follow that's like you can swap native uh, Bitcoin for native Ethereum through this sort of like cross chain. Oh, cool. that's awesome and super cool. Yeah. And, I, I didn't know that. There's also cross-chain oracles. So like on Chainlink, if you want to say you're doing a prediction market that's running on a layer two network, but you want to base it off of something that's happening on the layer one network, you can do that. Okay. We are um, we are now firmly in jargon land. So I'm going to rewind yeah. all the way back and just ask you what your job is at Block Native and like what you spend your day doing as a person who works in like crypto industry and has for a minute. Yeah. Um, I would say for anybody who is on the cusp, working in crypto is a ton of fun. It is by far the most innovative industry I've ever worked in with some of the smartest people working on the future of transactions. And anybody who's listening, I would encourage you to Get involved in hackathons like Gitcoin or ETH Global. It's a good way to like dip your feet in. And like that, we need more smart, driven people to work in this space. And shameless plug, Block Native is hiring. And if you're <laughs> interested in any of the careers at Block Native, please hit me up on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, any social media, or join our Discord. Um, but I am the head of strategy at Block Native. Um, my role is sort of a jack of all trades 
uh, position there. I've been with the firm since we launched our first product. So it's a little bit product strategy. It's a little bit working with customer and development. It's a little bit of whatever Matt, our CEO and founder, is having trouble with and needs taken off his plate. I figure out how to get that done. Um, currently planning our next team retreat in Palm Springs, which has been a, a fun one to nice. work through. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are the roles um, that you're hiring for at Block Native? Uh, engineers, 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 like every <laughs> crypto project. Uh, we're no also looking for project managers and product managers for building out our sales and our growth function. Um, so we really think about the organization in product, which encompasses all things product and engineering, and then in growth, which is all things sales. And then there's a GA function. So we're hiring for a head of people, head of operations, head of marketing, uh, head of sales, all levels of engineering. Um, yeah. And we're... How big we're is the company unit. now? We're about 20 people right now. Okay. We just closed our Series A over the summer. Nice. Congrats. Yeah. Yeah. Super exciting time to be building in the space. Okay. So, um, and for people who are maybe like uh, happy with their job, but want to dip toes into crypto, what are like the... What are the tools of the trade? I feel like part of it is just like not knowing how to kind of get in or where to start. Like, what's um, what do you so, have bookmarked? Yeah, a, what do you need to like equip yeah. yourself with to dive in? Well, the fun part about crypto is it's permissionless and anyone can jump in. The hard part is it's permissionless and you're not nobody's going to tell you to jump in. You just have to do it. Uh, I would say like follow your interest because if you're pulling on a thread that. You're excited about, you're way more likely to contribute in a meaningful way. So, if you're really jazzed about NFTs, uh, Dystopia Labs is running a hackathon next month where you can join in and probably start contributing to some projects or join the Discord of a project you're excited about. Hey, if you see something broken, if you think there's a way to do something better, speak up, contribute. Like, if you hold tokens for the DAO associated with a project, get involved and start voting. Or like join hackathons like ETH Global or ETH Denver. ETH Denver, side note, is generally the largest hackathon in North America every year. Oh. We'll see what happens with COVID this year if it's in real life. Um, Gitcoin is a platform where people post bounties that you can get paid in crypto for doing work for crypto projects. And... If you're sort of on the fence and want to test it out, see if you could do some projects for some companies. Like, there's a ton of ways to get in, but there's no, there's no one way. Yeah, it is cool. Um, so I've I've started like hanging out in some discords and a few um, kind of like DAO governance, which is just like yeah, DAO is basically a company, except everyone just like chooses to work there and participate there, and like. It's it is weirdly like being in a Slack group for like a startup, except you can just opt in or out to any specific project, and anybody can propose anything at any time, and you could just kind of like lurk in there, um, which is both interesting. If you're like, oh, maybe I want to like buy this token, I'm just going to go like watch what the community is doing and saying and what people yeah. are planning. Um, so it is kind of interesting from a like due diligence like perspective. It's like sitting in on all hands um, when you're thinking about buying a stock. But it's also like this beautiful kind of meritocracy where people can just like choose to go contribute and get appreciated. And like I've got an airdrop token governance tokens just from like 
voting on things after reading up on them, just kind of like sitting around um, yeah. putzing and through for, stuff. Like, if there's projects you are holding tokens on, like get involved. You can actually you can make an impact in the outcome of that project that you have a financial incentive for, which is crazy. And never before in the history of humanity has that been uh, possible. Or if there's like specific projects that you're excited about, like go join their communities and see where you can get involved. Nobody's going to ask you to though. You have to like take the initiative to say, oh, I'm doing this and this is how I want to do it. Yeah, that that is good advice. And the people that I know who who have become kind of like full time crypto, it's been like a slow kind of like dip a toe in the water, figure it out, buy some tokens, works well. Like, it's kind of slowly eaten up more of their lives that they've gotten comfortable navigating that world and buying more and contributing. And like, maybe they win a you know get voted to be on a project team for you know a three month cycle, and they're like, oh, like I'll, I'll quit my job and try this or like see see how it goes. Um, yeah, and for people who aren't quite ready to like get involved and contribute to projects, I would say start with the Bitcoin and Ethereum white papers, and then from there, open up a wallet, spend two hundred bucks in ETH, and expect to lose it all, and just go hands on with a DeFi project and an NFT project. Because once you actually go hands on and start like playing around with it, it totally changes the dimension. Like, oh. Back in the 90s, you could read about the internet all you want, but when you actually opened up Yahoo and started exploring the web, it was totally transformative. You can read about crypto all you want, but until you're actually going hands-on and engaging with projects and engaging with a wallet, like it's sort of abstract and esoteric. Yeah. Okay, so so let's let's work with this like 90s internet um, analogy because I think it's a common one, but I also think it's pretty good. So like if we're at... If we are in crypto at, I don't know, 1997-ish internet? Yeah, 98, 99. Okay. So like we got a crash coming, and but we got like slow loading, uh, you know, like web pages and some early stuff where like maybe you can buy a book on Amazon, but it arrives a week later and it's on a really janky web page and like your password might get stolen or your credit card might get stolen or your wallet will get hacked in our parlance. But um but you kind of have the glimmer of something really cool and exciting, but only like a few million people are actually playing with it. Um, I think the so the crazy thing about like we were talking about like the DAOs and the sort of like open organizations and uh, the meritocratic participation and the sense that anybody can buy into or out of a project um, in the same way that like in the 90s, our social lives were very much not online. Yeah. And and it was like almost inconceivable that like most of our friendships and communication would happen on websites. I think a similar it, like I don't think it's unreasonable to say like, if communication went approached like cost approached zero um over the last 20 years, if transaction costs approach zero and trust the cost of creating trust approaches zero over the next 20 years, that in the same way that our social lives were radically transformed, like our business lives will be radically transformed and our work lives will be radically transformed and how like the the society will change uh, radically as a result of that new technology and like work might look a lot different in 20 years oh just like the internet transformed everything about society i think we're on the precipice of reinventing society yet again because like 
sure, the internet's been impactful, but imagine doing what the internet did, but to the entire global financial system. And that is... And the certification system and the, so, yeah. so, so that's a really fun like rabbit hole actually is like, let's, let's talk about like, uh, you know, you, you said here, like that you think eventually the whole world will be on chain. Yeah. Um, so, so let's like wildly speculate about the order of operations there. Like what is going to move on chain first? I love that. What, what are the dependencies in there? And like, what is the last human system to, like, to, to move on chain in a hundred years or something? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing is financial system is moving on chain rapidly and, Every major financial technology company is investing heavily in the space and starting to figure out what their blockchain strategy is. Um, we just saw recently MasterCard made a really big acquisition in the space. Visa bought a CryptoPunk. JP Morgan is running their own blockchain network and has their own stablecoin that's internal. Like uh, China's central bank is running their own digital layer and they have their own digital renminbi. So like, yeah, finance push him full bore into it. I think the world of art and expressiveness is close on its heels. Like the, the innovation happening around NFTs with things like Damien Hirst issuing an NFT that you can buy that is backed by a real print. And in a year, you get to choose which one gets destroyed. Do you get to keep the physical item or the digital item? Is mm. crazy. Um, stoner Cats which beautifully combined crypto by having Vitalik Buterin in it and having Mila Kunis, Ashton Kutcher, Chris Rock. And the only way you can watch this show is to hold the NFT. And presumably at some point, like say that show gets licensed onto Netflix, well, does that licensing deal flow back to all the crypto, all the stoner cat uh, token holders? Like potentially, that's pretty cool. Um, and gaming... So I bought a crypto, I bought a stoner cat, like not only for yeah. disclosure, but also because I think it's a really cool thing. And it, it's like directly fan funded media, right? So like yeah, they there's raised no, like 12 million bucks to yeah, create the show. In ETH in a day. So like I I'm uh paying basically like the the writers and the artists and all of those people by participating in this like kind of Kickstarter-y thing. They were kind of like, yeah. hey, there's we're gonna mint 10,000 of these. And if we sell all 10,000, we'll produce a, you know, a six-show run and the season one, basically. Um, but if we don't, then like it kind of ladders down. But I think it's it is a very cool um, you know, there's no like creative gatekeeper between the fan and the creators. And you don't have to, it didn't have to have been like a legit Hollywood crew to have just said like, hey, we're gonna like Kickstarter ourselves like this media project that we just want to exist. It's awesome. Um, exactly. And the feeling of having a token in your wallet and then signing into a website, then then having a different experience as a result of what's in your wallet was definitely like an oh shit, like I get this in a new Isn't way like, kind of moment for me. Yeah. 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 That game changing moment. Like the first time uh, I remember the first ETH Denver I went to when they airdropped me some tokens that I could, I had to use those tokens to engage with the food trucks. And it was like, oh, cool. This like yeah. experience makes a lot more sense now. And it was really, really cool. That was running on the XDI POA network at the time, which is like a layer two sidechain. Um, I think commerce is quickly moving in this direction as well. Like 
e-commerce, retail, um, anything that's supply chain related, logistics. So like, uh, when will somebody create the decentralized, the DAO version of Uber where anybody, Mm -hmm. like they're coordinating to create a software project that replaces Uber and pays the drivers an equitable wage and removes a lot of the bullshit you get from a centralized party. Um, I'm, I'm excited for that day. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah. so far, like basically like anything with pixels, uh, well, well, super simply like numbers come first, right? The financial system is just like transacting balances. So that's really easy. And, and a lot of that is actually happening. Like DeFi is advancing really quickly and doing some cool stuff. Um, the digital art world, I would say, maybe like art just, and gaming. I would say I would yeah, expand that a little. Yeah, yeah gaming is is cool. I probably know the least about the metaverse um, or the like gaming uh, sort of blockchains that are coming, but I think um, it's also a really natural fit and also like pixels at the end of the day. Um, then there's like a lot of atoms related stuff. So Uber, I think, is a great example. Um, yeah, and there'll be plenty of those. Mark Cuban also also on the uh, Bankless podcast had a really cool like he's like every purchase order should every every like letter of intent yeah. every like all business paperwork should basically be on the blockchain. Uh, I, I do that think that'll take twenty or thirty years, but yeah, and, yeah, and that's where like, yes, that should be on a blockchain. No, that should not be on layer one Ethereum, and mm-hmm. no, that doesn't need to be public to the world. Um, I think anything supply chain like. I love. Have you followed New York State's vaccine program no. and their application? So no. it, it's actually running on a blockchain. Um, oh. So every single vaccine that was distributed in New York was tied to IBM's blockchain, which is a private blockchain, which some people would call uh, hyperledger or distributed ledger technology, not necessarily blockchain, but say we're just going to use blockchain now. Um, and you. When you got your vaccine, the QR code that was tied to the vial that was put into your arm, and you scan it with an application that's run by New York State. And then when you go out to restaurants, they scan and verify cryptographically that, like, yes, this is a real vaccine. And it's getting around a lot of other states where people are forging vaccine cards. That's amazing. Which is just a perfect example of like any certification, like the cost of certification approaching zero, like we will be able to know things for certain, uh, a lot of things, which will, which will expand the market for certification and confirmation of things that happened or didn't happen. Um, and kind of continue that, which I think is super, super cool. Uh, and there's a lot of applications for that that'll emerge. Imagine voting like, all of the things that are going on with DAOs and rank choice voting, quadratic voting, like we could actually have way more participation in the economy at more free or in the government at more frequent points, uh, mm-hmm. based upon blockchain systems. Like, yeah, it's funny. That was actually my candidate for the thing that will come on the blockchain last. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I think that one will take a really long time, just like. Getting rank choice voting into the world is taking forever. But I can totally actually can see Singapore doing that in 40 years, right? Yeah. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Or like a local government doing that much sooner. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. So, okay. Um, is there any like, 
Are there any of the skeptics arguments that you're sympathetic to either really about like the technology or, or the impact? Um, I totally get the climate shade that we're getting for proof of work blockchains. And for people who aren't familiar, there's two ways to validate a blockchain, proof of work and proof of stake. Proof of work involves really, really complex problems that you have to throw a lot of computing power at to solve. And by making it really difficult, you're protecting the the blockchain. And it turns out that Bitcoin uses more power than some countries. So does Ethereum. Ethereum is transitioning to proof of stake likely early next year. Uh, It's slated to reduce the energy consumption by 99%. um, And proof of stake is all about using the value on the network to secure the network. So to run a validator node, essentially a node that looks at transactions and says, yeah, these are valid, you need to stake a certain amount of uh, crypto. And if you're found to be fooling the network or trying to do bad things, they will slash your stake and you can lose all of your crypto. Um, is, is that like equally secure to proof of work? Yeah, proof of stake blockchains have I mean, proof of work seems more secure and I'm by no means a security expert. Like there are people who specialize in this all day, every day, but there are plenty of proof of stake blockchains that are running right now. And if the staking algorithms and the consensus mechanisms are set up in such a way, like, yeah, they're great. Um, But that is where like consensus design, algorithm design, and who's running the staking nodes is uh, something you really need to pay attention to. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so uh, so you earlier said uh, that Flow is a beautifully designed blockchain. Um, yeah. What, like, what makes it beautifully designed, and, and what are maybe some of the like design trade offs that these blockchains will make to specialize for certain use cases? Um, yeah. So what I mean about Flow being beautifully designed, I, a few things specifically here is one that the blockchain just sort of evaporates behind the scenes. Anyone who's used Top Shots, like it is a beautiful app to work with and it it just works. Like you don't have to deal with private keys. You just set up an account. You can buy your NFTs and you can move on and you can trade them. It's really fast. It has all of the benefits that you would expect from like a modern web experience, but it's powered by a blockchain. Now, their consensus algorithm, uh, when they launched, was actually, I forget exactly how they set it up, but they worked with a number of trusted parties to run validator nodes. So I think A16Z is running one, Union Square Ventures is running one. I want to say like Stanford and Harvard and a bunch of universities. So they like worked with all of these organizations to set up the validating system for this mm-hmm. blockchain. So they they beautifully used the brand reputation of trusted entities to help instill trust into their blockchain. And they said, it needs to be run in a semi-centralized way by semi-centralized node providers. And they have a, they've talked about potentially enabling anyone to run a node to validate the blockchain and like really moving towards progressive decentralization. But I in there are people who will argue with me about this that yeah. any amount of centralization is uh, a problem, and I, I'm a firm believer in progressive decentralization. Like, start 
in a way that's easy and trusted and move towards decentralization over time once you prove something's working. If you try and like start fully decentralized from the start, you're you're signing up for a lot of work and a lot of pain. <laughs> Is that like at the blockchain level and the organization level? Like I see I've seen um organizations and DAOs kind of start centralized and then yeah, slowly kind of try to like work their way out as things take a life of their own. Exactly. And Maker did this. They started fairly centralized. And they, uh, a woman by the name of Amy Jung, who, if you don't follow, definitely follow her on Twitter. She led the community at Maker through the entire decentralization efforts. And they, they started progressively and they yeah. slowly started letting the community take over the Maker protocol. And they were setting up the standards by which their decentralized organization would enable the community to move the protocol because something that's managing billions of dollars of value, you don't want to change like at a whim. You want to be very <laughs> deliberate and slow and like, cool, smart contract changes, I think take like several days, if not weeks, to actually get pushed into production based upon the systems inside of that DAO. And like that makes sense when you're running a big financial system. Yeah. So so when you hear critiques of specific projects, either, you know, layer ones or layer twos or anything of being like, oh no, they're, they're like too centralized, right? Like that's a thing people like yeah. posture about. Like whatever, whatever like blockchain you maxi for, like the person next to you is just like too centralized. Like, do you buy that? Or since that's like such a shifting thing and like people can become progressively more decentralized, you assume most of this stuff will head that direction? Uh, it depends. There are definitely some blockchains I am highly skeptical of and I like will not touch with a 10-foot pole. There's others that like, oh yeah, they're centralized today, but they're transparent about how they're centralized and they mm-hmm. are... Like they are willing to engage with the community about how they are going to either change that or become decentralized, or like they're clear about the trade-offs of why they are centralized in those manners. And like, I think it, it, transparency is a value that I really, really prize. And if like firms are transparent about why they made the decisions they did in their design and what those trade-offs were, great. If those things are just missing from a white paper or a project overview, it's like, huh. <laughs> if you know, they're like Binance is a very notable blockchain that um, has a ton of traction around it, but doesn't disclose who their validators are. And their validators are all private. And that gives me a little bit of pause. Now, I've definitely played around with Binance because it's there's so much activity and buzz around it that I think I would be foolish if I discounted it entirely. Uh, but I approach it with a little skepticism. Okay, so so as we kind of wind down here, I have a final question um, that I'll get to in a second. But this is um, decentralization is like a key kind of core of a lot of these debates, and it's like is it is a reason why people. Are drawn to the to Bitcoin in the first place and many other blockchains, and still kind of like argue about who's decentralized and in what ways, and like aspire to greater decentralization. And for people who are like basically mostly happy with the world as it is, or like not don't have this fear of centralization. Um, I don't know. I guess like what is the 
what is the motivation to like decentralize all the things, right? Like why is that a why is that desirable versus like what we have today that like I don't know, for someone who would say like what we have today like largely works. Um what 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 is like maybe in different communities may have different answers to that, but like what's your take? Yeah. I don't know many people today who look at the world and go, we're doing great. Um, <laughs> I, I think I, I would start there and then follow up with like, for some things, decentralization is great and is really important. And to run permissionless, trustless systems, decentralized decentralization is uh, a prerequisite. Now, there are plenty of things where I'm totally good with centralization. Like the creation of vaccines. Sure. I don't think that should be decentralized. I, <laughs> I actually like that there's like trusted parties and gatekeepers. I would like more transparency in those processes. And I thought that like the COVID vaccine, it was great getting briefings and data coming out and like a lot of transparency around the creation of it. And I think the a lot of the efforts around decentralization are really an effort to provide more transparency in the world and especially in america in the last like since 911 there has been been this reactionary pressure to centralized governments that are making decisions without providing information like the whole war on terror and weapons of mass destruction in iraq argument like a lot of faith has been lost and by providing transparency through the lens of decentralization, I think we can rebuild trust in a different meaningful way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like the the trust as the key piece of it, like it doesn't have to be decentralized, but when things are centralized, they're inherently asking for us to like, oh, just trust, just trust us. Like, yeah. Um, which works until it doesn't. So that's maybe and- like the turkey problem involved is like, even if we haven't had a problem yet, doesn't mean we won't, um, but a trustless system, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a misnomer. Like, uh, it's not a trustless system. It's a system that you do not need to trust because verification is inherent. Exactly. And I, I think that's a big distinction in like, providing more transparency and helping to rebuild trust is uh, a really central part of I think what blockchains are working towards from a, on a societal level and creating new ways for human interaction and human coordination and engagement and societal interaction. Yeah. I, I like, I'm stoked about, I'm stoked to see what happens with DAOs over the next five or 10 years. Me too, man. Me too. Yeah. Um, is, is the stuff, is the teaching that you do at uh, Parsons, right? Is it, is that any of that public that we can, uh, get access to I, and learn from? I can definitely share around some materials. Yeah. I have not taught at Parsons since I, uh, COVID. That sort of okay. put... I didn't continue teaching online, but I do continue to run workshops here and there for different companies, different schools. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, last question uh, that I think will be particularly interesting is what, what do you see as the biggest challenge in this industry right now? Like, what do people need to really put their shoulder against to unlock the biggest uh, sort of appreciation and, and benefit for everybody over the next few years? Yeah, I think, I think if you look around the crypto space, 
we need to pull a lot more people into it. We're starting to, like El Salvador and countries making Bitcoin legal tender is a big step in that direction. But I think blockchains need to stop worrying about which one is the best blockchain and start pushing towards like blockchains have the potential to revamp humanity in a really exciting way. And it really doesn't matter which chain wins. It matters that we get a chain to win or we get multiple chains to win. Yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, less less tribalism, more uh, human, like species scale cooperation. Um, yeah, like we're all part of Spaceship Earth here. Yeah, and and I I do think um, you know for for being like a distributed ledger technology that's just like words on a page or lines of code, like it has potential. The second and third order effects of like how humans organize and what this technology enables is incredibly incredibly crazy um, and really fun once you kind of put that hat on and start to think about it. Once you dive down the rabbit hole, it changes how you see everything. And I I know like many people in the space, I have to be careful not to turn every single conversation with friends into one. Well, you know, if this was on the blockchain or when this is on the blockchain, we'll do this differently. <laughs> is it a cult if we're all in it? I don't know. Uh, yeah, unclear. <laughs> uh, Sean, thank you so much uh, for, for taking the time. Dude. This is super fun. I learned a lot of things. Um, I appreciate all of the hard work that you're doing. And I hope I never have to understand what a mempool is because of all that hard work. Thanks, man. Uh, This has been a super fun conversation. Thanks for having me. Later. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. I really appreciate you. I encourage you to explore some of the links in the show notes. Start playing around with crypto. Uh, If you're interested in this and want more like it, try out my episode with Jason Hitchcock, if you haven't heard it already. And one personal reminder, don't forget to toast the bread for your sandwiches because you deserve it. Take a few quiet minutes, soak this all in, breathe deep and be well.